Hello and welcome to the first pages of Mrs M's scrapbook. To anybody who is new to the Mrs M's Curiosity Cabinet podcast channel, I'm Meg and I come to you from London in the UK. I recently decided to add a little subsection to my podcast channel, as there are stories that I want to tell and snippets I want to share that don't really fit in the more lengthy musings of the Mrs M Curiosity Cabinet podcast itself. The first instalment of my audio scrapbook starts in our tiny urban cottage garden. If you follow me on Instagram, you will know that my odd little urban garden is a great source of joy to me. It keeps me sane, forms an important part of my making portfolio, is an extension of my pantry and is generally the site of many little acts of constructive rebellion. I've decided to kick the Mrs M scrapbook off in the garden for two reasons. Even though we are in the cold, dark lull before the busy hands-on growing season, I long to be out in my tiny garden as it helps me deal with the seasonal depression. Secondly, most of my making interests, from cooking to fibre crafts and even from ceramics to bookbinding, are ultimately dependent on the soil, the dirt beneath our feet. Therefore, tiny acts of gardening are a good reminder of how central soil is to our existence. I wasn't born a gardener. I don't think anybody is, really. I first got into hands-on gardening in a small urban garden two addresses ago, shortly after my mum died. It was a way of grieving and also of feeling closer to mum, who had been a devoted gardener all her life. Back in those days, I would say things like, I garden a bit, or I'm just trying to grow a little food. I still used all those apologetic qualifiers when I started gardening on the patio behind our current home. But somewhere in the past 10 years, I've gone from trying to grow a little food to being a gardener. Gardening does not involve an end point, as a garden is never really finished. That's part of the joy of it. It's an endless work in progress, as there's always another growing year. As we're on the cusp of a new growing season, I thought now would be a good time to invite you into my garden and to join me so you can see the kind of work that turns a patio with delusions of grandeur into a tiny urban cottage garden. January is a pretty quiet month in the garden. The weather varies here from crisp colds to miserably damp and daylight hours are severely limited. As my garden faces northeasterly, which is never ideal for a garden, and as the arc of the sun is pretty low at this time of year, my garden is darker and damper than normal. That said, there are still jobs that need doing, and as there are already signs of life everywhere, I need to get a move on with some of them. One of the jobs is planting up raspberry canes, as this will be the year that I invest in fruit, rather than just growing vegetables. I ordered some raspberry plants from a nursery back in early December, and they arrived as bare root canes. The canes may look rather forlorn. They're a short cane about a foot long with a bare root rather than attached to a clump of soil, but they're perfectly healthy. The plant is in a state of dormancy, conserving energy until the temperatures rise. In this state, the plants take up less space in the nursery and are much cheaper to post, which makes them a more economic choice than buying a potted plant later in the year. The dry cut-down canes bore last year's fruit and are now pretty much redundant, but the plant will send up new canes, which will bear this year's fruit. 
I picked a variety called Autumn Bliss because of the good taste of the raspberries, and as it's supposed to be a heavy cropper, always a plus in a tiny garden. Also, this variety is pretty aphid resistant. As I garden organically, I avoid synthetic pesticides, so I welcome anything with a degree of natural pest or disease resistance. Autumn Bliss is also not overly fussy about supports, which is a good thing in my garden. As the name suggests, Autumn Bliss is an autumn fruiting plant, as opposed to the summer fruiting raspberries. This means it will put on new growth, i.e. new canes this year, and fruit in late August and September. This is different to summer fruiting raspberries, which make fruit on the canes that they grow in the previous season. The time of fruiting matters not just because of the harvest, but because it informs us of when we need to prune the plant, but more on that later this year. In an ideal world, I should have planted these canes out as soon as they arrived, but I still had to clear space in the only real bed this garden has, so I potted them up in a large container for the time being. Buds are starting to peer at the base of the cane though, evidence that they are ready to start to give life, so I need to plant them out as soon as possible. I have a stretch of soil that's about two and a half metres long or eight foot along the fence which I'm devoting to raspberries. Back in early December, a splendid salvia amistad was still taking up most of this bed. Although I wanted to cut back the flowering plant, dig it out and transplant it, I left it for as long as possible as there were still bees buzzing into the purple flowers looking for forage for their winter stores. I've now cut it back though, which has created space for the canes. I'm spacing the canes at about 45 centimetres or a foot and a half. Before doing so, I forked a good layer of compost in. Once again, I should really have done this several weeks ago, but between my caring for late autumn insects, the British weather and the ups and downs of fibromyalgia, I'm working with the time and energy slots available to me. And as with most gardening advice, there is a big difference between ideal conditions and muddling through with those we have. Speaking of muddling through with what we have, there is a lot of advice about how to properly stake raspberries. How deep to drive in poles, at what height to string wires and what grade of wire to use. But as this variety is not so fussy about being tied in, I'm going to make do with stringing wires between the fence posts and tie the canes in here and there when they grow. Raspberry canes don't really need to be planted particularly deeply. The roots should be at about 8 centimetres or 3 inches deep. I rarely bother to get the tape measure out for these kinds of jobs though. I just use my body as a guide. So two average sized female feet is about a foot and a half and the length of my middle finger is approximately three inches. When popping the canes in the soil and backfilling the holes, I notice that there are signs of green buds on the old canes. As I want the plants to concentrate all their energy into creating new canes, I've pruned the old cane back to just below the green buds. All that's left to do then is water them in. The other urgent job in the garden involves our rhubarb crown. I want to move it both in terms of its location in the garden and out of its temporary container. As often happens in the garden, a temporary situation can become semi-permanent due to circumstances. But as Mr M loves the rhubarb stalks in desserts, and I appreciate the leaves as a mordant for natural dyeing, the rhubarb deserves a pot with more drainage and a sunnier spot in the garden. 
rhubarb crowns can look like a stumpy, soggy mess at this time of year. The plant dies back in the autumn and winter and can look like a pile of decaying leaves with a few knobbly masses. But in amongst the tired brown mess, there are already signs of new shoots. Once again, ideally I should have moved this a month or so ago before the new life really got started, so I'm going to have to be very careful when I transplant it. I approach moving the rhubarb crown a bit like an archaeologist approaches excavating at a dig. I dig out the soil around the crown till I get below the level of the roots so I can then gently tease them out. It's a harder job than I was expecting. There is a sizable root ball on the rhubarb which means the conditions in its temporary home were probably better than I thought they were. I'm transferring the rhubarb to a large pot, one that's about 60 centimetres or two foot in diameter. It's positioned against the back wall, which gets good morning and late afternoon sun in early spring, and a lot of sun as spring shifts into summer. The rhubarb will share this pot with our Babington leek, another perennial vegetable. Perennial just means it's a plant that lives for several years and becomes more abundant with age, unlike beans or tomatoes, which live their whole life in a single season. The Babington leek has a thin, tall growing habit compared to the rhubarb, which grows to about hip height and outwards. So I'm hoping the two will share this space quite happily. But as with most things in the garden, it's an experiment. Before excavating the crown, I dug a large hole in the destination container and added some grit, very, very small stones at the bottom to improve the drainage. This is so that the rhubarb doesn't sit in a puddle of water if we have a lot of rain. The crown of the rhubarb needs to sit above the soil. I backfill the hole with a mix of earth, partly the soil I dug out from the new container, as I enriched that with compost before Christmas to boost the nutrient content, and partly the soil I dug out from the original pot, as I want the rhubarb to feel at home. That may sound a bit hippie and woohoo, but soil is teeming with all kind of microscopic life and as the roots have been bedded into this soil they will be familiar with the bacteria and fungi in it. So surrounding the rhubarb with some of that familiarity in its new home should help the plant settle in. All that's left to do then is water the plant in. As I grow most of my crops in pots I generally need to water my plants regularly as they can't push their roots into soil to find water for themselves. But it's particularly important to water plants when moving them, as a move stresses a plant's system, and water just helps them to recover from that stress and settle in. Every time I head out into the garden with a list of jobs to do, I invariably spot something else that needs doing. A little pruning, a little tying in, a bit of pinching out, and usually a little weeding. We have our fair share of weeds in the garden, and weeds is actually quite a tricky term. It can mean anything from a wildflower that has found its way onto our plot, a plant that has self-seeded itself into a spot we'd destined for something else, or an invasive plant that sucks precious nutrients from the soil and even suffocates the plants that we do want to cultivate. One of the weeds I have to contend with is alkanet. Not the useful dyer's alkanet, but rather the communal garden green alkanet. It has some properties that are similar to comfrey, which is a really useful plant in the garden, but it's really a bit of a bully. 
If left unchecked, it produces large hairy leaves, tiny blue flowers and long tub roots that are more difficult to pull out the longer they are left in. I therefore try to stay on top of weeding out this bully when it's young. It can be a bit tricky to identify in the garden though at this time of year as young alkanet leaves bear a passing resemblance to young foxglove leaves. And in my earlier years of gardening, I certainly pulled out some foxglove plants in error. I find the easiest way to distinguish the two is to take a closer look at the leaves. Although they're broadly similar in shape, the edge of the foxglove is more delicate, as if somebody has taken very softly beveled pinking shears to the edge of the leaf. Also, the vein pattern is quite different. The foxglove leaf has large arterial veins, like thoroughfares or avenues, and between them there is a complex of smaller veins, almost laid out like a grid-based suburban design, with clusters of streets organised in blocks. By contrast, the alkanet leaf has a few large arterial veins, with a few smaller veins in between, that remind me of main roads with a few side roads forming cut-throughs, but lacking the closely-knit neighbourhood layout of the foxglove leaf. When I spot a cluster of alkanet leaves, I pop my gloves on and reach in for the root to pull it out with as much of the tap root as possible. I don't generally wear gloves when gardening. For one, I'm more dexterous without them. Also, there's a lot of scientific evidence that exposure to bacteria in the soil can help boost the production of serotonin in our brain. But mostly, I view soil, seeds, cutting and plants as the raw materials in gardening. And as with all the other forms of my making, I like to experience materials firsthand. I therefore only use gloves when handling plants that are spiky, sting or cause rashes, like alkanet. There will be many more jobs in the coming weeks before the real work of sowing seeds and potting up plants for the season really kicks in. I want to move one of our raised beds and make a few structural changes based on what worked well, and less well in past seasons. I hope you will join me for the heavy lifting involved in those projects, as well as a few more sedate January makes in the coming weeks. But for now, I think it's probably time for a cup of tea. If you want to follow my activities between episodes, you can find me on Instagram as Mrs M Curiosity Cabinet, and that is with an underscore between each word. Or on my blog, mrsmscuriositycabinet.com, where I'll also leave some show notes for this episode. As always, thank you for listening, and I hope you're enjoying some seasonal making, whether that involves pottering in the garden, the kitchen, a sewing corner in your living room, or a workshop in your garage. Mm-hmm.